Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. I'm very excited about our topic today, which is ruminants in a sustainable food system. And it gives me pleasure to introduce Sarah Place. Sarah, you want to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yeah, my name is Sarah Place. I'm a Chief Sustainability Officer at Alenco Animal Health. Fantastic. And and can you give us a little bit about your background and what your uh, area of expertise is, Sarah? Yes. Yeah, so I'm uh, an animal scientist. I'm originally from uh, upstate New York. I grew up on a dairy farm and kind of had a winding path. I uh, got my PhD at UC Davis in California, uh, doing work on measuring methane emissions from cattle and spent about four years on faculty at Oklahoma State in animal science. Uh, spent about three years at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association running their checkoff-funded uh, sustainability research program and have been with Elenco for the past uh, six months. That's that's really cool. And Dr. Frank Mitloner uh, from UC Davis, he spoke at our conference last year and gave a fantastic presentation on this same topic, uh, which we have available to our members on our website. You can download that um, uh, for free. It's also available to non-members. So I'd encourage our listeners to listen to that uh, presentation as well on this same topic. So if we could uh, move in a little bit, Sarah, on, you know, what is your definition or of sustainability? What do you think it means when we're talking about a sustainable food supply? Yeah, so sustainability is one of those words that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And part of it is because we're trying to balance several different things at once, right? So it really is about being economically viable, being uh, environmentally sustainable and having good environmental stewardship and being socially responsible as well. So that's a pretty broad definition. And it's going to mean a lot of different things when you get down to the specifics of an operation. It kind of has to be generic because everybody's dealing with different resources, dealing with different financial situations, et cetera, right? So it's just really about balancing all three of those areas. And especially in today's uh, world, right, we cannot forget the first criteria is you need to be financially viable to be sustainable, of course. That's 100% correct. No matter what business you're in, if you're in the veterinary business or the food production business, you do have to uh, remain in business to be sustainable. Yeah. So I think it's frustrating for uh, those of us in the beef and dairy industry, as well as the other uh, food animal industries, uh, when we see a lot of the information out there about beef and dairy production and, and I'm sure we've all been at parties or at family gatherings where our industry is criticized for having uh, detrimental effects on the environment. So what are the facts about the contribution of beef and dairy on climate change and greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so it, it is something that seems to be a hot topic persistently, even now, which is, I'll be honest, has kind of surprised me during this pandemic. We're still seeing articles written about how livestock is a big contributor to climate change. And it's a little bit, um, a little bit surprising, I would say, just because we, we've, we've seen the effects of this uh, quarantining and this shutdown across society, right, on air pollution and on CO2 emissions. And it's really driven by the fact that we're not driving cars, we're not flying airplanes, we don't have as much industry running. 
Um, and that is where the bulk of our emissions come from. So if we were just to zoom in on the U.S., 75% of the greenhouse gas emissions just come from combusting fossil fuels in this country, right? If we look at animal agriculture as a whole, according to the EPA, it's 4% of emissions. And so if we zoom in a little bit closer on beef and dairy, beef directly contributes about 2% and dairy about 1% of our emissions, right? So um, those are the official government data, right? Those are the actual inventories. And when I say direct emissions, that means mostly all the emissions that come from animal manure. And then any of the emissions, and we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in depth, but this is a big one for beef and dairy, is any methane that cattle belch out naturally. Right. And why, why do you think there's so much misinformation out there? You know, I was talking to my brother-in-law who's a chef in Chicago and, and, uh, you know, when I told him the, the 4% number, he was flabbergasted. He said he thought it was 50%. Um, and, and, you know, there, there have been, there have been quote unquote studies and information out there in the popular press about, uh, you know, that, that we have a significant impact and, and, people should move to a plant-based diet. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there's I think there's interests that help perpetuate misinformation and perpetuate some of the numbers out there that are a little more ridiculous. There is actually an estimate out there of 50%, and that one is completely discredited um, by any serious scientist. But if somebody wants to push a narrative, they have a number on the internet to quote, right? And as we know, we can find pretty much anything on the internet to support whatever your bias is. Um, but getting back to that, you know, really where a lot of this started was uh, 2006, the UNFAO um, released this report called Livestock's Long Shadow. And that report really has driven a lot of the narrative in the last decade plus. And essentially, the, they came out with this estimate saying that uh, animal agriculture globally is responsible for 18 percent of human caused emissions. And then they falsely compared it or inappropriately compared it to transportation and said it was more than all of transportation. That's since been uh, walked back several times, even by the author, the lead author of Livestock's Long Shadow, highlighting that that comparison was inappropriate, and yet it still persists. And so I think a lot of these comparisons to transportation and some of these inflated numbers we can really kind of point back to that that report as a landmark event that really fueled uh, this latest generation, I would say, of, um, uh, you know, kind of interest in livestock's impact on the environment. This issue kind of always raises its head, but this is the newest generation of it, I would say, is really driven by this climate narrative. Right. Yeah. And, and when you talk about global versus uh, North America, uh what is a you know you you talked about how animal ag in in U.S. is is four percent. Why is it that uh, that we you know is there a difference globally between various countries on greenhouse gas emissions and why is that? Why is there a difference? In yeah, so if we think about any kind of uh, data like that, and we're presenting it as a percent, right? We got to think about what's in the numerator and what's in the denominator, right? So one of the key things is what I mentioned earlier is that just the United States, we burn a lot of fossil fuels, right? So just agriculture in general, in most 
developed nations like the United States is usually 10% or less. And I'm saying that that's all of agriculture, all crops and animals together. Um, and partially that's because of that dilution effect that we just burn a heck of a lot more fossil fuels than some of our developing country counterparts in other parts of the world, right? They're just not as dependent upon um, transportation systems and uh, fossil fuel derived electricity, et cetera, right? So that's part of it. The other part of it are true differences in efficiency across uh, production systems around the world, right? So we are, of course, if we just look at beef, a major beef producing country. Uh, we are the number one beef producer in the world in terms of the total amount of beef we produce, but we're not the number one country in terms of cattle numbers, right? So that's important because that drives that difference in total greenhouse gas emissions that are produced and the emissions that get produced per pound of beef or per gallon of milk. Um, and that efficiency that's driven by, you know, basically a lot of just animal husbandry practices, right, from animal nutrition, animal health, genetics, um, those differences really add up across the world. So for beef example, for example, um, you know, the, the carbon footprint or the greenhouse gas emissions per pound of beef in the U.S. can be 50 times less than other parts of the world. So huge variation that exists. Yeah, that's and that's really important because our producers, our farmers, uh, ranchers, uh, and and veterinarians, as well as the, you know the scientists, we've really advanced. We all are aware that we've advanced our production efficiencies, which has a net effect of decreasing our our carbon footprint while making food, um, which is which is really important. Let's talk a little bit about methane as a greenhouse gas and how that is different from some other greenhouse gases. What effect does methane have? And also does, does diet, how we feed animals influence that? We're all, you know, another, another, uh, uh, item that I've, I've heard discussed around the, the dinner table at gatherings is, is, well, I only eat uh, uh, grass-fed beef because concentrating them and, and, and feeding them uh, a grain uh, is bad, is, is further damage to the environment. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So methane is a greenhouse gas, and it really is key for ruminant agriculture because this is one of the key reasons that beef and dairy kind of gets a target on its back. It's because of the methane that gets produced, Right. Um, so methane, it's, it's a naturally produced gas in all ruminants. So whether we're talking about domesticated ruminants or wild ruminants, whether it's bison or deer, whatever it may be, um, they all produce methane from their ruminants. And it's not actually the animals, it's the microbes, right? Specifically the methanogens, the archaea that are producing that methane. And it's a natural, again, natural part of the process. It removes reducing equivalents from, from the rumen, it makes, you know, essentially rumen fermentation happen, right? So that's, that's really key to understand, uh, removing the, those quote-unquote waste products of fermentation. So in terms of methane and how it acts in the atmosphere, you know, when, when methane gets emitted, uh, it does have a potent effect at trapping heat in the atmosphere. But the unique thing about methane, especially compared to carbon dioxide, which is the main greenhouse gas, is that it doesn't stick around very long, right? So if you're thinking about cattle out there grazing on a, on a landscape, 
they're consuming carbon that was once in the air, right, in the form of grass that got captured by photosynthesis. They consume that grass. They emit some of that carbon, a very small fraction of it, as methane, which is one carbon and four hydrogens. And then after about 10 or 12 years, most of that methane actually gets broken down to CO2. And that CO2 can then, of course, be taken back up by plants. And hopefully that makes sense in listeners' minds, right? If you think about it, it's just a carbon cycle. And really what cattle are doing is temporarily transforming that carbon to a higher potency greenhouse gas. So the reason that's important, and this kind of gets a bit into the weeds, but there's some climate scientists that are really trying to emphasize this, is that the way we've been accounting for methane in a lot of these carbon footprint analyses has really misrepresented the whole situation, right? Because because of that short-lived aspect of methane, it is not like CO2, but we've been making it equivalent to CO2. Um, So so what really matters with methane is, is the rate of emissions being released, meaning are the emissions the same as the year before? Have they increased from the year before? Or have they even gone down from the year before? So in those three scenarios, we know that if emissions are increasing, that is a challenge, right? Because we're actually adding more additional methane on that's being added on top of how much gets broken down, if that makes sense. Um, If we keep emissions steady, we're really not adding more concentration of methane to the atmosphere. And that's really, really key because that's what matters. And if we're decreasing methane emissions, we can potentially even lower the concentrations in the atmosphere, which actually means a cooling effect. Um, So the reason that's important, one, is because in the United States, if we think about our cattle populations over a longer time scale, right, if we think about over the last 40 years, um, you know, beef and dairy cattle herds combined have declined, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's really hard to point to U.S. cattle production and the methane that comes from those cattle as a source of increasing methane, right? So, um, again, that gets complicated, but there's a lot of great explainers out there. And I think just to, just to kind of beat the dead horse a little bit more, I think a, a one way to think about this is almost like the analogy of a, of a bathtub in the water level, right? In that what really matters with regard to an analogy to greenhouse gases is the level of water in the bathtub, right? And we know if we had water going in and out of a bathtub at the same rate, the water level would stay the same. And this is kind of akin to the situation with greenhouse gases, right? With methane, if we keep that inflow and the outflow the same, the water level won't change, right? So we're trying to keep emissions either steady or slightly declining. Um, and that means we're not adding additional warming. With CO2, we've essentially just been cranking up the, the inflow of water into the situation, right? We're burning more and more fossil fuels. It's overwhelming our ability to remove CO2 or the drain in this analogy. And that's, that's really what's led to the current situation of increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah, and I think it's very important for... Um... Uh, our members to advocate for our industry and make sure we uh, let people know that we're also part of the solution. The the grass, uh, the corn, uh, all of the forages that we grow uh, to feed cattle, uh, 
they remove <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, they, they photosynthesis, they're, they're utilizing energy from the sun and, and CO2. Um, so, you know, I, I love that, uh, uh, meme where cattle are the, you know, the ultimate upcyclers where they turn energy from the sun into animal protein, which is really fascinating. And we kind of think about that, uh, so maybe talk a little bit more about that term upcycling and what that means. Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of related to the other half of your question that I, <laughs> that I didn't answer, right. Of, of what you just mentioned, right. Whether it's grass or corn, of course, always technically corn is a grass, right. Just a tropical grass. But um, when we think about those feedstuffs being fed to cattle, right. A lot of the plant matter, even in corn, if we think about, and corn silage, right? I mean, essentially 50% roughly of that plant matter is not grain, right? And is uh, cellulose, is energy from the sun that we as humans have no access to without ruminants, right? And I think that's what's super cool about ruminant animals is yes, they do produce methane um, and that's a trade-off to this upcycling service, but upcycling really is taking something that's of little or no value and making a higher value product to people, right? So all that cellulose, all that dry matter that we're feeding cattle, whether they are beef cattle or dairy cattle, really adds up, right? And we see that when we express things like feed conversion efficiency a little bit differently as how much protein is being generated from beef and milk, um, and that and the protein value to people, right? How much um how much amino acids there are, the essential amino acids, and how digestible they are compared to the same criteria of the feed inputs going into the animals. And because so little, right, for U.S. beef, we know it's about 90% of what they consume over their life cycle is actually human inedible material, right? We take into account cow-calf and stalker phases. And so because of that, the protein that's generated is actually two times greater in terms of quantity and quality than is used by the industry. And it's very similar situation for dairy, right? So if we go back to this grand challenge of sustainability and trying to feed people with fewer resources, it's really hard to be a ruminant when you're generating more protein than exists without them, right? That's, that's a pretty amazing service. Again, and it's just because of those rumen microbes. Um, and those rumen microbes, they, they can be manipulated, right? So actually, back to your earlier question about grain feeding or grain finishing, um, when we feed more fermentable carbohydrates right, to cattle, we actually lower methane emissions. It's counter to what people think. Um, but when cattle are going into a feed yard and they're eating a grain-based diet, concentrate-based ration, they are actually emitting less methane than when they're out on pasture. Right. So that's a very well established relationship. And it really just comes down to the more fiber that's in the animal's diet, the more microbial populations it supports that produce uh, hydrogen gas, less propionate. And essentially, we're just not capturing as much gross energy in the feedstuff in the animal itself. And we're emitting more as methane. And that's that's something for people to realize, right? Even if you don't care about methane from a greenhouse gas perspective, it's lost feed energy, right? So there's an advantage there. If we can lower methane emissions, we should be making cattle more feed efficient by capturing more feed energy in the animal itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it, it seems like, 
you know, I think it's frustrating for those of us in the industry when we have these facts that, you know, finishing cattle on grain, uh, you know, produces less methane, that cattle are upcyclers and they eat things that we can't and, and are efficient at turning that into animal protein. It can be frustrating um, when those are the facts and we hear uh, that we're the cause of, of, uh, of climate change. So how, how do you respond to people when they say, well, we should just use all this land uh, we're using for raising animals? And use it to raise plants for yeah. vegetarian uh, diet. Um, yeah. I, you know, what, what do we say to people that, that, that say that's what we should do? Right. I think it really comes back to this, this feed question and the land question are very much tied together, right? Because, again, most of the feedstuffs that we're using in beef and dairy production are human inedible, right? They're not in direct competition with human food. And I think that's where some of these critiques of animal ag come from is this whole idea, well, we should just take out the middleman, we should just eat plants directly. Um, and I think I think folks that are in the industry kind of understand intuitively that's that's a bit of a ridiculous argument, right? When we think about the Western US and just really where cow-calf production is taking place across all the United States, it is in places that are best suited or pasture lands, or are really actually rangelands, right? They're native grasses uh, where these cattle are actually grazing, right? So the amount of corn um, used by, if we just look at the beef industry, it adds up to about 8 million acres of corn, which isn't an insignificant amount of land, but it's only 2% of U.S. cropland acres, right? So it's just not an inordinate amount of land that I think is in people's minds. Right. So there's, of course, always ways to improve um, and to you know improve our land use, for example. But taking animals out of the equation is not the answer there. Right. We need to have those nutrients being cycled back with manure um, in terms of, again, the animals consuming those nutrients, retaining some of them in themselves and the products that we consume and then returning the others to the land. Right. I mean, that just makes sense. Um, but again, it's the very basics sometimes that you need to explain to people um, because people are removed from agriculture. And there's no way that folks kind of intuitively would understand these basic things that we take for granted elsewise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even those of us that are in agriculture, uh, we're not familiar maybe with all the other aspects of agriculture. It reminds me of Dr. Glenn Rogers. He's our immediate past president. And uh, he's a, a veterinarian, and he's also a cattle rancher in Texas. He came and visited Dr. Mark Thomas, who's also a past president in New York, and, and saw some large dairies there, and he was, he was fascinated by them. Glenn has been in the cattle business his entire life, uh, and, and he was really fascinated by the rotary parlor and the, and the dairy, uh, the way the dairy work. I went and visited Glenn at his ranch. I'd never been on a cattle ranch like that, you know few thousand acres. And when I look around, I realize there's nothing that you can do with that land except make beef. And uh, it was just really um, fascinating to see that. And I think a lot of people haven't been in the in the cow-calf areas of the country. A lot of people don't realize that cattle, when we talk about feeding them grass, that's where they're born and where they spend the majority of their lives is out on that open rangeland pasture um, and then finish in in feedlots. 
Um, so even those of us in the industry, I would encourage uh, those of us in the industry to visit other areas of the industry um, and reach out to other AABP members and uh, and educate yourselves on that. It's it's real eye opening. Uh, so maybe if we could talk a little bit about uh, you know one of the things right now is is is, is uh, I call it fake meat, uh, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, Meatless Mondays. You know we talked a little bit about uh, land use, but maybe would that have an effect on the environment if everybody quit eating meat on Mondays? Um, is that an insignificant uh, impact that, that that will have on climate change by, by switching to fake meat products, et cetera? Yeah. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the simple way to sum it up is just like, you can't eat your way out of climate change. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you can eat a ribeye steak every day or you can eat tofu and it's just, it's just not going to make any difference. Right. It's not going to scale to anything. And hopefully that makes sense because think about those numbers I quoted you earlier, right? All of agriculture in the United States is about 10% of emissions. And of that, about 4% is animal ag directly. Um, there are consequences of, you know, massive shifts that are unrealistic, right? The idea that everybody's going to go vegan or vegetarian, right? Um, you don't just get rid of animals automatically and you just don't um, eliminate some of the practices in agriculture that do generate greenhouse gas emissions, you know, cropping itself generates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions from the soil and the soil microbes. Um, so that doesn't just go away. And a really, a great study kind of looked at this. And again, it's, it's unrealistic, but it puts an upper bound on what's possible. And these two scientists looked at this situation of what if every American went vegan and we somehow eliminated um, all animals, all farm animals in the United States. So I always kind of joke, we have one final barbecue and then that's it in this situation. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after that's done, right, the final barbecue, what actually takes place? And, and what they estimated is we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 2.6 percentage points in the United States, but we would create a food supply that produces more calories and more pounds of food, but doesn't produce enough essential nutrients to actually nourish everybody with just the food supply that we have, right? So a key nutrient there is vitamin B12 um, that is only found in animal source foods, like beef, dairy, uh, pork, chicken, all those products, right? So that's super key is that we have to think about these trade-offs between nutrient density and greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that's kind of a basic fact, again, that people don't really think about is that if you look at the environmental impact expressed per pound of food, um, typically animal source foods do have a higher impact, but they also tend to have more essential nutrients per pound, right? <laughs> if that makes sense. Because animals are essentially, they're just concentrating nutrients in plants. And they're mostly, they're eating plants that are either truly inedible to us or stuff we don't want to eat, right? I mean, we could eat a corn soy diet if we had to, but I think most people would rather eat bacon, right? I mean, that's just the way, that's just the way it is, right? Um, and again, I think that basic fact that we just really, with agriculture, all we're doing, again, is harvesting solar energy and then just transforming nutrients in different ways. And plants and animals and microbes all interact in that process. So, you know, back to this idea of plant-based meats, it's, you know, it's another choice for people and that's, that's good to have choices and variety in people's diets, but it's just, um, I think there's a lot of marketing language out there that's 
positioning these products as a solution that one, I think, is divorced from actual consumer behavior and how much people are consuming these products and if they're actually ever supplementing or substituting, excuse me, um, meat. And it seems like the evidence on that is pretty slim to none. Um, and two, it's just that back to that idea of if everybody goes vegan, it reduces it by 2.6%. So what, you know, what difference does one person going meatless on Mondays make? Probably zero, right? Because that's that meat's going to be eaten by somebody else. Um, and it's not going to, you know, your example, it's not going to send a signal back through the supply chain for a rancher in Texas to not breed a cow. Right. And that's ultimately what they're arguing is going to happen. I just, I see no evidence for that at the moment. Um, and just, just to, to wrap that up about this question about thinking about how to communicate to people, I think this plant-based uh, movement is is a great way to kind of be a little bit provocative, but have that conversation starter of just say, you know, we already produce plant-based meat, right? It's called beef, right? Beef or pork or chicken, right? We, these animals consume plants and then we consume their products, right? And this is the, the way that process actually works, right? So um, I think that's what's really key is just getting back to the basics of agriculture and we, we probably shouldn't assume that people know too much. And I think that's part of the challenge is, is uh, some of these arguments are really based on fundamental misunderstandings of the basics. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. I, I just really, really like this topic, Sarah, and, and uh, appreciate uh, you talking about it today with us. I previously mentioned that um, we have Dr. Mitloner's uh, uh, presentation from the uh, 2019 AABP conference and uh, um, about uh, the impact of, of uh, beef and dairy production on, on climate change. It's a, it's a really, really great presentation, 30 minutes. I'd encourage all of our listeners to download that. Uh, and I'd also like to inform our listeners that on July 28th, uh, Sarah will be doing a webinar uh, on this topic. And uh, so we'll have some slides and she will probably get into a little bit more detail. Uh, but where else, uh, Sarah, would you recommend listeners go for some truthful information about uh, the beef and dairy industry and climate change and sustainability? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, a lot of industry organizations are great resources there. Obviously, Elenco, we try to put out a lot of information about this topic, whether it's on our social media feeds or some of the information on our websites. But the beef and dairy industries have also done a great job with their uh, industry efforts, right? So websites like beefresearch.org, um, the usdairy.com website has a lot of resources that are um hopefully easily digestible, right, for people to understand some of these topics um, because it is such a pressing issue and for sure could potentially have long-term implications for demand or just the perception, the public perception in the industry um, if that misinformation can continue. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage our listeners to follow those Elanco uh, sustainability social media feeds. Um, they're really good, and they uh, uh, provide you with, with a lot of information. Um, so in wrapping up, I'd encourage our listeners to be advocates for the beef and dairy industry and be prepared to respond um, at those uh, family gatherings with facts. 
facts about the beef and dairy industry and facts about uh, what we're doing to minimize the impact of climate change while we are making a nutritious and affordable and abundant uh, and safe food supply for the consuming public. 75% of greenhouse gas emissions are from fossil fuels and 4% are from animal ag in total with 2% from the beef industry and 1% from the dairy industry. The UNFAO report has been discredited uh, and, and even walked back, as Sarah said, from the author authors themselves. So we're doing a good job here uh, in the U.S. and globally with uh, raising beef and dairy products with having a minimal impact on climate change. Finishing cattle in a feed yard on grain is not bad. It actually decreases methane production. And if they, if we were all to go vegan, uh, which I personally would not be able to do, uh, it would only have a decrease uh, uh, 2.6% the emissions, uh, the effect on climate change. So uh, what we need to do is continue to improve uh, our industries um, with genetics, nutrition, animal care, so we can continue to raise uh, the ultimate plant-based products, which are beef and dairy. So I'd like to thank you very much, Sarah, for being with us today, sharing your expertise, and I look forward to listening to the webinar that you're going to present on July 28th. Thanks very much for having me. Come on down for a check.